Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast that's developed a small throbbing headache since it remembered that Gavin Williamson is still Education Secretary. My name's Corey Hazelhurst. I'm a partner in propaganda with Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. We've taken out the Christmas tree, we've battened down the hatches because the first few months of 2021 promises to be rather tough. But thankfully, listeners, we've got something to take your minds off all of that. So I'll move as and shake his picks. At the start of every year, certainly for the past three or four years anyway, Steve and I have chosen the men and women who we think will make waves in UK politics. At the end of 2021, we will decide whose picks were more successful using our special arbitrary pick generator. Last year, unprecedentedly, my picks moved and shook more than yours, Steve. I mean, it had to happen eventually. Like Don Bradman, Steve, I don't really believe in the law of averages. So, again, we're going to pick the leader, the cabinet minister, the shadow cabinet minister, the politician, not from the two main parties, uh, the commentator, activist and wild card pick. Steve won the toss. Who's your leader? Uh, so in terms of leaders, I'm going to take a page out of your book last time uh, and uh, go for the prime minister, because as you so eloquently uh, put it in, in our end of year review, very hard to be more influential than the prime minister of the United Kingdom when it comes to United Kingdom politics. This is especially true, though, in relation to 2021, where with the Brexit deal being signed and you know, the, the end of the pandemic, at least on the horizon, the vaccines beginning to be rolled out. That presents a massive opportunity for Boris Johnson to really redefine British politics. In fact, he has a a good-sized majority in Parliament. He should be able to leverage that into meaningful things. So Johnson should be a a good, safe pick for this. Should be, I suppose, although... Listeners may recall that although I did pick Boris Johnson and indeed very eloquently argued for him in that end of year review, I didn't actually win that particular round of picks. Theoretically, you are right. I think it's fairly clear that actually the deal that's been signed is only the start of more talks. It's not, uh, it's not the end point for Brexit. Um, It only covers goods, not services, for instance, which is just one key way in which um, a lot of this is still unfinished business. On the other hand, I think he has that does give Johnson a pretty quick political win, as was seen actually by the fact that Nigel Farage as well backed Boris Johnson's Brexit deal. As you say, the rolling out of the vaccine as well, there is a chance for him to, to properly reset. And the flip side of all of that, though, is Boris Johnson's actual performance as prime minister, which if the last 18 months has anything to go by, in which he's, yes, he's got that 80-seat majority, but he's also managed to burn through the political capital of his backbenchers quite quickly. I think, therefore, the combination of the, the fact that government bandwidth is still going to be dealing with Brexit in some way, government bandwidth is also going to be dealing with uh, rolling out of the vaccine and with COVID in some way, means that actually Boris Johnson isn't going to move and shake as much on the UK political scene. Therefore, the person I have picked to be the mover and shaker is Nicola Sturgeon. So I've gone for your pick from last year. 
on the quiz, I think some of the more interesting bits on that, if, if people haven't, haven't listened to it yet, are the predictions about what might happen vis-a-vis the Scottish referendum question. And I think that the role, uh, there's new Scottish elections in 2021, which I think this SNP will do pretty well in. Therefore, I think a burning question of British politics will be the survival of the UK itself and Scotland's role in that. And therefore, Nicola Sturgeon uh, has the possibility, has, I think, the chance to be a major influencer in UK politics, not just in Scottish politics. I, I think you're absolutely right. And giving something away for one of the other categories, Sturgeon will be making an appearance there on, on my side of things as well. I, I think you are correct that Sturgeon has a lot of capability to really create some uh, some movement in, in, in national politics next year. But the reality is, in comparison to... Um, Boris Johnson, most of uh, of, of, of Sturgeon's uh, ability to make noise is going to be relatively limited because Boris Johnson's just going to turn around and say, no, I'm not giving you that referendum, which might be bad long term for the, the United Kingdom, actually could be the sort of thing which does eventually lead to the breakup of, of, of the country. But in 2021, I think what you're probably going to find is uh Sturgeon tries to call for a referendum gets told no yes you might and I, I believe I, I went for some quite fanciful predictions um around them holding a, a Catalan style um illegitimate referendum and things like that in the in the in the uh in the end of year quiz but like the actual impact of those sorts of things is probably going to be relatively limited in, in the short term when when it comes to 2021, uh, Sturgeon's probably not necessarily going to be in a position where I'd say she's more influential than Boris Johnson is. And the counter argument for that is it's all about government bandwidth, isn't it? And we've said there are many ways in which government bandwidth is going to be limited. I think this is another one. I, I take your point that it might just be Sturgeon asks for a referendum, maybe Johnson then refuses it. But then I think what that means is that that can be leveraged to gain extra political capital in Scotland as well. The reverberations of Scottish independence will therefore continue. That Even if Johnson says no, it'll still continue and it'll be an, an ongoing story. If Brexit has taught us anything, it's that the UK can engage in a lot of discussion of the UK constitution and navel gazing that does mean that all the other problems that we have don't get fixed. Yes, but fundamentally, I think it's far too easy for the Conservatives to just go, we don't care about Scotland, we're just going to ignore you. They don't need to engage um, necessarily with um, Nicola Sturgeon, because I don't think the Conservative Party actually cares about the continuation of the United Kingdom anymore. Like, they'll pay lip service to it, but every action they've taken over the past God knows how many years does not suggest that they are they actually care about it in that way. You say that, but... I'm not sure if that's true. I mean, Theresa May did. Probably the reason why Theresa May didn't compromise in the way that Boris Johnson has done is because actually she wanted to protect the UK and made a big point of it being the Conservative and Unionist Party. And I think there are still a lot of Conservative MPs, certainly a lot of members, who, who do care about the UK and do care that Scotland is part of the United Kingdom. So I think you're right in that the that sort of right-wing Eurosceptic faction, that is the reason why Boris Johnson's Prime Minister maybe don't care as much, but actually I think in terms of the Conservative Party, I think there are a lot of people who do care. We have Cabinet 
minister picks then i'm going to go a bit left field my pick is liz truss a few reasons for that she's the longest serving cabinet minister which i think is an interesting fact her portfolio is international trade we've talked about the fact that brexit talks will be ongoing i think you've hinted that one of boris johnson's main focus i think will be domestic policy but actually i think there'll be a certain chunk of the conservative party that will want to try and champion the global Britain aspect. And we've talked in the podcast, some of that is pretty overblown. But actually, I think Trust will be having talks, not just probably at the, the EU level, but with other countries as well. And it's a good chance for the government to sort of show that Britain is making a success of Brexit, at least rhetorically. Also, in the last poll of Conservative Home members, Liz Truss was second only to Rishi Sunak in terms of approval among Conservative members. Given, as we said, Rishi Sunak, yes, is powerful, but made all the wrong calls last year. And given also that we will be looking, I think, for a new Conservative leader in the medium term, and given also that most Conservative leaders become leader because of who they're not, rather than because of who they are, Ian Duncan Smith was not Ken Clark, John Major was not Michael Heseltine, Margaret Thatcher was not Ted Heath. And that was the main reason that those people were chosen rather than any particular attributes on their part. If, and this is slightly speculative, but if you're looking for someone popular among the the Reich and file who is not Rishi Sunak and not Michael Gove, I can see people coalescing to Liz Truss in a way that they also did for Theresa May. And I think Truss is ambitious and that's why you've seen her... Um, go above her brief as well. So she gave a speech over Christmas on um, equalities as well, which I suppose is is kind of her brief because she's also the Minister for Equalities. But it was wide-ranging, shall we say. I don't think we're going to talk about it in this podcast, probably in the next one. But I've gone a little bit left field, but I think otherwise there's a bit of a danger of buying stock in ministers while they're high and actually at the end of the year they won't be as influential as as we Mm -hmm. think they might have been. You're, you're, you might be onto something there with Liz Truss. Um, and I think in, in some ways you've actually gone along a similar kind of route for your logic in your pick as I have with with mine. I think what you what you say about Liz Truss is, is quite interesting and, and potentially quite accurate. Um, she probably does have ambitions. When you sp- spell it out as you have there, yeah, I can see a scenario potentially. Potentially, I, I don't rock the boat too much. Let's just keep the keep things on the road as long as we can, candidate. So I think that's actually a, a, a left field, but quite a, quite a good pick on your part. I've gone for Pretty Patel with Brexit talks for the most part being over. Yes, as you say, there are other things that will, will come up and, and do that, but the, the, the crushing deadline is dealt with. Yes, the sooner we get those things done, the better. But there isn't a a, a huge uh, impending deadline now to take up all the time and attention. That creates more capacity in the government, probably means more domestic focus in terms of politics and policy. And the Home Office has one of the, the kind of the widest ranging briefs. This is doubly so, I think, given the the fact that an awful lot of the areas that the Home Office does look at and look after have a lot of culture war potential um, within them. So if the government did want to go down that kind of route, the Home Office and Pretty Patel as the face of that would be a very strong for them to look at. One of the reasons I've gone for Pretty Patel is there was a scandal surrounding her and Boris Johnson in terms of the bullying allegations and the report which eventually came out and Boris Johnson didn't get rid of her. So if 
there is a reshuffle coming and there probably will be at some point this year. Pretty Patel, I don't think is going anywhere. I think she's going to stay in the cabinet because if you were going to get rid of her, you'd have gotten rid of her already. Instead, he burnt more of his limited political capital on keeping her around. Let's go with that specific thing first. I think that's a slight misreading of the Boris Johnson uh, developing a wall, wall around the Pritster, which apparently is Boris Johnson's nickname to Pretty Patel because we live in some absurd public school farce. I think that's because Boris Johnson is loyal to people who are loyal to him. I do think, actually, if there is a reshuffle, that Pretty Patel will not be Home Secretary. Uh, I so I still be in Cabinet, though. Oh, she'll still be in the Cabinet, but she won't be Home Secretary. If I had to guess, I would go for Party Chair, rallying the faithful. I also wonder if actually that would mean that Michael Gove becomes Home Secretary. I also think that you overestimate slightly the ability for the government to focus on bread and butter domestic issues. I think partly we've seen the weaknesses in Boris Johnson's style of governing, but also I think even a a pretty effective Prime Minister who is involved in detail and is able to manage a wide range of cabinet ministers would struggle to carve out an agenda given the fact that, yes, okay, there is no looming deadline, but actually the the government is still going to spend a lot of time arguing about these things with the EU. And so that is going to take over, I think, a lot of government business. And also, I think, certainly for the first three or four months of the year, it's the vaccine and the health side, I think, which is going to see a lot of that day-to-day detail rather than any sort of cultural element. I mean, yeah, in terms of the vaccine, until the, the this is that's resolved and the pandemic is resolved, then to be honest, all of the other stuff we we, we, we talk about probably becomes almost moot. But in terms of talk, looking at the bandwidth of the government, I, I think you're overlooking actually one little thing there, which is why on earth would the government, having secured this historical trade deal, which does everything they say say it does, and, and it's bringing back sovereignty and it's a good trade deal, all of those different things, why would the government immediately go back and start trying to make changes to it and start really kind of de- devoting a lot of prime ministerial time and cabinet minister time to these th- to the to these things in the way that they have been before because that, that immediately makes it look like actually no we're, we're already trying to make changes that's that's not something that therefore the trade deal isn't good enough that opens yes. up attack avenues against the government and that means that i think you'll eat, you'll find that the government may quite happily just not ignore it but it will take a back burner to a load of things because They've already demonstrated they don't care if services aren't in there. So what's the difference from their perspective if it's not in there this year versus next year? Well, I suppose um, the difference is it's not about having to change the deal. The difference is you have a thin deal and you need to then talk about the stuff the deal does not cover. So you need to talk about the 85% of the British economy that is not covered. Um, Certainly, if you care about the City of London, you might need to talk about passporting. That's changing the deal. That's changing the deal, though, because we don't have that within the deal. No. That's 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 my point. Yeah, it covers something additional, but it's still adding to that, which says immediately the original deal we got wasn't good enough. But it's not which change- it isn't, but it's not changing the text of the deal. It's talking about things that aren't in the original deal. That's not changing the deal. Yeah. No, no, but, but what it means, but from the perspective of like in, the internal politics of the UK, what you're, what you can say is, hey, we're now going on to talk about other areas. Well, why wasn't this a priority before? If I if I order ham and chips, and I get a side yeah. order of onion rings, I'm not changing my meal. I'm adding something to the original meal that wasn't covered in it. 
I'm not asking them to substitute mm, ham for fish. From a literal sense, you are absolutely correct. But from the perspectives of um, the optics of it, that's not the case at all. You're, it's an admi- if you're already going back and saying we need to do more deals, that is a sign that what you did before wasn't good enough. And I think that this government is cynical enough and incompetent enough to sit there and go, you know what, we're just going to let that lie because we don't want to touch that because it creates too many problems for us. I think that Boris Johnson, who in December 2019 was quite happy to say there would be no checks down the Irish Sea as a result of his deal, and then bring in exactly that, is quite happy to keep on talking and blame the EU for everything. Um, I think it's like, it needs to happen because it's a bureaucratic process. It's still going to need to happen. Um, they're just going to kick the can further and further down the road. I think in terms of other government business, I think I think it's economics, maybe not culture stuff. I, I've, I wondered about going for Rishi Sunak. I wonder who would win in a Patel Truss fight with the Conservative members. Let's not worry about that for now. <laughs> Instead... It's your shadow cabinet pick first. I've gone for Lisa Nandy. And the logic behind this is that Lisa Nandy is the shadow uh, foreign affairs uh, spokesperson. There are a number of foreign policy challenges that are going to become even more uh, apparent uh, in 2021. Issues such as China uh, and uh, what what they're doing with the Uyghurs, um, that, um, you know, the concentration camps and things that are happening over there. When you take that and you take those challenges um, that face British foreign policy, I, I think there's a lot of potential there for Lisa Nandy to be a, a breakout performer, especially as in, in many ways, foreign affairs, it can be a very have your cake and eat it um, sort of situation when you're in when you're in opposition. Um, you don't necessarily have to make any of the hard choices, but you can criticise the minor details and things like that and kind of latch on to them quite nicely. So I think Nandy, therefore, has got quite a, a good amount of potential in 2021. Uh, Nandy was my first choice, you bastard. <laughs> for, for a lot of the reasons you've said, actually, in many ways, I think actually the breakout star of the Labour leadership contest last year and was rewarded, I think, with a high profile pick in which she's done well, as you say, highlighting things like the, the treatment, the shameful treatment of the Uyghurs. The other main reason I picked Nandi as opposed to my reserve pick, Starmer's leadership so far has been about not necessarily a big shift in policy tone. It's been a lot about changing the mood music. But I think one area actually in which there is has been a bit of a shift is in how the party talks about foreign affairs and not wanting to be seen weak on national security, not wanting to be seen weak on defence. Starmer's explicitly talking about patriotism as well. So I think Nandi is a key part of that. But for those reasons, I think Nandi is a pretty good pick. My reserve pick then almost went for Kate Green um, as shadow education, but my reserve pick is Ed Miliband a blast from the past, and someone else okay. like Lisa Nandy who's come back. My logic for Ed Miliband is, like Lisa Nandy, he's a pretty decent media performer. He seems to be one of those shadow cabinet ministers that is trusted to spokesperson for the leadership. I think where there will be, I think, a few things starting to roll out are, is in his portfolio, which is shadow business, partly because Ed Miliband's also quite big on green issues and green industrial revolution issues, and I think that'll be important for Labour over the next year to keep together its voting coalition especially in the may election will i think be 
trumpeting its approach to green issues in a way that um, deals with the Conservatives' approach, which I think is, is, as we've sort of said, is high on rhetoric, but probably low on substance. So I think Labour's approach to green issues is going to be very important. And Ed Miliband will be part of that. And as you know, he spearheaded the Climate Change Act. So he's got history on that. Again, almost went for Annalise Dodds because we are going to be like the impact of COVID on the economy and on jobs is going to be significant. And I think Ed Miliband also covers that as shadow business. So I think his policy portfolio is quite important for that as well. I mean, let's face it, it is hard for an opposition to try and make inroads when your governing party has a majority of 80. But I think in terms of both his brief, his role in the media, his role in keeping together Labour's voting coalition, I think Miliband is someone who will play a big role in whatever policy rollout does happen this year. I think Miliband is an interesting and probably a very valid pick. His his stock has actually only really gone up since he uh, he ceased to be Labour leader. In, in some ways, I do kind of feel like maybe that is actually a better pick than Mandy. If I'm if I'm being honest, there's more of a guarantee that you can create policy agenda and kind of try and set control of like a narrative around what Ed Miliband is focused on and what Ed Miliband will be talking about. Whilst Lisa Nandy in in foreign affairs, unless you're going to try and radically depart from what the government's proposing, it's all about like the criticism of criticism of minor differences and, and can be quite hard to do, but if you do it well, it can kind of land quite nastily. Foreign affairs most people don't pay attention to it too much. It dep- I think it depends. And I think this pick will be an interesting one to see what the direction of Labour has been like over 2021. Lisa Nandy, I think, is very much a mood music, how's that going pick. And Ed Miliband is very much a how's the policy electoral coalition bit going. I think you're right in that... Um, Elections aren't really won and lost on foreign policy generally. There is still, I think, chance for Lisa Nandy to be a bit of a mover and shake it, if only because I think she's a politician sort of on the trajectory up, whereas, as you say, Ed Miliband has already been leader. And I think there is a different trajectory there, but I think I think you've got a decent point. I, the problem is I'm going to confuse you by making a cricket reference, but I think the, the kind of Miliband as a former leader, it's a bit like like someone like Graham Hick. So Graham Hick was an amazing county cricketer, then played for England, didn't quite make the grade really, bit of an average really considering his talent record as an England cricketer, goes back into county cricket and just keeps making a shed load of runs. And that's where I feel like Ed Miliband is at the moment, partly because I think as leader, Ed Miliband just didn't really feel able to be himself and so almost, I think, tried to be Tony Blair when he he wasn't, you know, even emulating the glottal stops and what have you, yeah. the, the sort of Tony Blair speech. Whereas Miliband now, um, I think, is, is a politician who's comfortable in his own skin and is able, therefore, to uh, to present himself actually more authentically. It's the really weird, uh, again, that's probably a podcast in itself on authenticity in politics. So backbench pick, I mean, I am going to... Unlike Boris Johnson's stick with my winning formula, and I'm going to go for Brexit hardman Steve Baker, who is chair of the ERG, he's chair of the CRG. If there's an RG in there, Steve Baker is chairing it and is making life uncomfortable for the government. Someone like Jeremy Hunt would be a bit of a left field pick, but actually I think we are going to see a Conservative government that is constrained by its 
A, it's your skeptic wing, but also how and when the lockdown restrictions get eased. And we're already seeing that in some bits of the right wing press with Neil O'Brien on The Telegraph being an interesting example of this. And I think Baker will be one of those outriders trying to influence government policy. And his record so far is pretty good. He's a pretty decent organiser. Yeah. I cannot fault you for, for going for, for, for Steve Baker, to be honest. He is a very good pick overall. It, it's interesting you should talk about left-wing picks, though, and it's really interesting that you 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 would list, you listed like Jeremy Hunt would be a left-wing pick because I've gone even more kind of out there, I think, with my pick as well. I've kind of put all of my eggs in a single basket and a single kind of line of thought may or may not happen. Um, and it's one of those things where if I do get it right, then I am proclaiming myself political Nostradamus. My pick is Dehenna Davison, who is the 27-year-old Tory MP for Bishop Auckland. The reason I've picked her is because I think when Johnson does do a, 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 a reshuffle at some point this year, I think that she's going to be the sort of person which they'll want to give a ministerial brief to. She's not going to end up in cabinet uh, this year, I, I almost Certainly, but I think she has probably could be a a, a good person to have a a, a, a ministerial brief in, in in one of the departments. I think that goes quite a long way, given like a lot of the image problems that the Conservatives quite have. I think they'll be quite keen to be able to put somebody up who is so young and, for the most part, seems to be not completely incompetent. She's had a minor scandal where she joked that um, the reason. Um, Scottish Labour are kind of having troubles because um, uh, Richard Lennon speaks with an English accent, um, which in the grand scale of, you know, new MP things to do is, in, in terms of scandals, is kind of nothing. Um, um, well, there was also a Hope Not Hate piece around her about a year ago because she's been photographed with far-right activists and attending functions. Well, I don't think that's good. I don't think that's going to be particularly matter to the Conservative Party, though, do you? Well, I mean, it should. Like, like, it, yeah, like it people who venerate... <laughs> but um, pe- if you have your photograph taken with people who venerate Adolf Hitler's birthday, it's not great. Yeah, but it's... Yeah, but it's not going to... It's not the sort of thing that's necessarily going to stop stop them from promoting somebody like that anyway, is it? Let's let's be honest here. Like, rights and wrongs of it, whatever, but, like, we're not dealing with the, mor- the morality of it. We're dealing with the, is this person potentially going to be influential? No, I, I was I think, just kind of going um, for the record. Oh, yeah, I know. I know. Um, but, um, but yeah, and I also think uh, Davison, she's a member of the ERG, and I think having somebody like Dehenna Davis in the tent um, is a good way maybe to try and curry favour with them. Um, get and uh, as I say, because you're getting in somebody who's new. Yeah, I and I think therefore that she might um, be in with a shout of uh, getting some kind of position. I don't think that's a bad pick. However, I I think it's a half decent pick for a reason you didn't say, and that's because there's one research group we haven't talked about yet, and that's the Northern Research Group. So my, mm, yeah. my reserve pick was Jake Berry, who's the chair of the Northern Research Group. We've skirted aside from the economics of this. The political push from Boris Johnson's backbenchers, I think, is either going to be from, as I say, the Eurosceptic side, from the COVID restriction side, but also that levelling up agenda, which we're going to talk about in our Resolutions podcast, the Northern Research Group are going to be crucial for that. I think Davison, as a representative of that... I think it's not a bad pick. 
it, it'd be interesting. Yeah, I'd be interested to see what kind of reshuffle they do. I, I mean, she may well become undersecretary for paperclips, um, but there's a limit to how much yeah. one can move and shake there. But I feel this is a bit similar to your Leila Moran pick from a, a few years ago. Someone who was, I think, pretty young, new into Parliament and was one to watch. Um, and I think that's been vindicated. I imagine in four years' time, we'll be saying similar things about Dehenna Davison when she'll also be a, a Lib Dem spokeswoman for education. Hello, Mark, <laughs> by the way. Um, yeah, Conservative the other party will have gone so right-wing that she'll cross the floor. Sorry, that's, that's not... <laughs> Sorry, go on. The, the other potential backbencher I, I, I had on here that, um, which uh, as, as, as the, the other one for, for me potentially was the Saj. I think the Saj could bell be quite, that would not be a bad pick, but I think Davison is near the sort of forces of gravity in the Conservative Party. I just want to get out there so that if Saj uh, Javid does end up back in, <laughs> in government, I can at least go, I at least thought about it. <laughs> Yeah, got to show our working, haven't we? I think, actually, you've already hinted who this might be for more attentive listeners um, about who the pick from the person neither from Labour or the Conservatives might be. For me, it's it's Nicola Sturgeon. Pretty much for all of the reasons that, that you listed, I just think she's a better pick for this category than the party leader category um, because I cannot think of any other re- politician from outside of Labour and the Conservatives that has really the potential to drastically shake things up. It's a no-brainer for me. I mean, the, the, the question is, does the jury think that you can have a same pick as me, even if it's in a, in a different section? But let's just assume you can. Um, I think it makes it very hard for me to win this section, uh, assuming I don't go for Joe Biden as someone who's neither in Labour or the Conservatives. Part of me also wants to go for Nigel Farage in this section. Um, just so we can check in them on check in on them every so often and say hello to Mark, I think I'm going to go for Sir Ed Davey as Lib Dem leader. I think what's interesting about Ed Davey though is that when the vote came on the Brexit deal over Christmas, the Conservative Party from their official Twitter page did have a um, a graphic attacking Ed Davey and the Lib Dems for voting against the deal, calling them Democrats in name only, and I think it's interesting the Conservatives gave them, gave them a time of day if that makes sense I think um, the fact that they've done that suggests that they know there is a, a potential threat in probably a couple of dozen seats that they need to yep. watch and so I think it'll be interesting to see if the Dems were able to make gains in May as well. Davy was my, my my second pick. In a number of seats the party in second even despite everything else is still the Lib Dems you don't have a Jeremy the prospect of a Jeremy Corbyn prem, uh, prime ministership and government scaring those more moderate left-wing pro-EU Tory voters and and scaring them to to remain in the Tory camp, you may very well find that enough of them could start to gradually uh, over over time start moving away from the Tories towards the Liberal Democrats. Ed Davey isn't a bad pick by any stretch of the imagination, but it involves them actually starting to make gains, the Lib Dems starting to make gains this year really i'd say as we've said it's hard for labor to make an impact in the current climate i think it's even harder for liberal democrats as we discussed uh, discussed previously i found the next section the hardest to choose i don't know if you found this as well but i think it's i, I feel like the media climate is just so diverse it's hard to find columnists and commentators who are really being influential I, I had to expand it slightly into a way that may not technically be within the limits and if it is 
weaker, I will happily change. Uh, <laughs> Not only stealing my picks for other sections. Well, so I, again, I almost yeah. picked Nigel Farage for this one, but thought that might be a bit dodge. I'd have been fine with it, but I also don't think it would be a good pick, but that's a separate thing. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't sure. And let's, let's leave it there because the last thing that yeah. our listeners want to start the new year with is an extended discussion on Nigel Farage. And besides, the Eurosceptiness <laughs> is kind of done with, with Steve Baker. So instead, yeah. I've gone for Andrew Neil, formerly of the BBC, now chairman of GB News, and they are launching this year. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how, how much they can rival the BBC. And I think it's probably just worth keeping tabs on what is going on there. That is a very good pick from a kind of a, a meta perspective of British politics rather than kind of like the nitty gritty. I think that is a very um, shrewd pick. I went for Victoria Newton, who is the editor of The Sun. The Sun now has more visits in a year than the Daily Mail does on its website like, like last year we uh, we talked about how the uh, daily mail had overtaken the sun and uh, in terms of the, the sign of um you know, it's a sign of geordie Gregg's you know influence on things um i think you're gonna and i think with the sun kind of moving into this position it's a similar kind of thing and especially this is the case because engagement with digital media for newspapers is actually up overall um year on year and is continuing to go up um and interestingly there's some very there's been some quite niche changes in terms of how people are actually kind of visiting websites it, it now more people are just heading directly to their favored website whether it be the guardian the sun the daily mail or whatever than going through google which used to be the, the portal to news in a lot of ways there's a lot of change in how people are kind of um adapting uh, to consuming news and i think if you're the biggest public publisher in terms of digital news you're in a very strong position to influence the agenda moving forward i think that's a pretty solid and solidly argued pick um as you say it's kind of along the lines of the the geordie greg pick it's interesting what you say about the website as well because my my understanding, which is probably about five years out of date now, was that the Daily Mail was has sort of diversified more into on, in, online, doing a lot more sort of celebrity stories, capturing a lot of the, the US yeah. market. It's, it's global, though. Yeah, mm. it's global rather than yeah. specific, though. It'd be interesting to see what the news output of the Sun is like mm -hmm. and how that does influence uh, the the coverage of the government as well. So I, I think that's a that's fairly solid pick. Can you, though, end your picks with an equally solid wildcard pick? Uh, I, I, I can, uh, I think. I'm going for Boris Johnson's chief of staff, Dan Rosenfield, because he's the chief of staff. Um, and in theory, after all of the messes um, that we've seen throughout um, last year from the government, I think if you start to see... Um, you know, I'm not expecting miracles. I'm not expecting them to become actually competent but i think there's a lot of potential for them to improve and i think a lot of that improvement will come down from having having rosenfield in position and also because i i, I ummed and ahed about maybe allegra stratton who's the new um, press officer that backroom kind of person um is gonna be something to to pay attention to yeah that's interesting i suppose a bit like wicket keepers probably if there are lots of stories about him it's probably not good because we don't want chiefs of staff to get noticed. Yeah. So if it's a good pick, there'll be no evidence of it because there'll be no stories. <laughs> but there should be evidence of like things improving is is kind of my, mm. my, my, my point there. I'm not necessarily thinking that it's 
going to happen, but I feel like as wildcard picks go, this one's at least got a chance that I can come up with something to justify it. I mean, they're talking about this reset, aren't they? You seem more optimistic yeah. about it than I am, or at least your your picks sort of divine that way. Yeah. My wildcard pick is Jonathan Van Tam, the Deputy Chief Medical Officer, partly because I thought that my picks didn't have a lot of coronavirus-related heft, and I think that is still going to be something at the forefront, obviously, of government mind this year. Um, could have gone, again, for Matt Hancock as a minister, but I feel like Hancock's influence was very much a 2020 thing in terms of him pushing for a vaccine, and we, we, we've already talked about that. Um, but I don't think um, Hancock's ability to move and shake will be as much, and therefore I've gone for one of the scientific advisors instead. And given that in the first half of the year, I'm guessing... Well, this is how I see it anyway. The first half of the year, a lot of it will be talking about the role of vaccine. The second half of the year will be talking about how and when we actually sort of roll back a lot of restrictions. Van Tam is going is gonna to be in the room for those conversations. He's going to be uh, a very influential figure in those debates and those arguments. Yeah. The reason I've gone for him, though, rather than, say, Patrick Valance or Chris Whitty, is because he's one who, if you believe the government briefings probably coming out from people like Steve Rosenfield, are um, the government's hoping to rely quite heavily on him as a communications about actually spreading the word about what's going on. Um, apparently, his use of they like his use of metaphors, and and so he's apparently seen as quite a trusted voice with the public as well, and will actually be used to sell the government's approach. It's interesting that it's been Van Tam with Boris Johnson at some of the recent press conferences as well, actually talking about the government's message, and I think he'll have a big role to play in that discussion as well. So I've kind of gone sort of slightly a bit of a backroom pick as well, but someone who I also think will be quite prominent in the media as well. No, that's a, that's a sensible pick. Um, I can't fault that. If, if you're going to go for like a coronavirus uh, related pick in this kind of area and go for one of the more scientific um, kind of like elements of all of this, then then he's a solid, solid option. We will check in, I think, with these picks probably in about four or five months time. And in the meantime, obviously, we'll be putting out an episode in the week on our party resolutions. And we'll have an episode out as well every Sunday, which you can get wherever you get your podcasts. We'll also be putting out content for our champagners. And if you want to find those and support the podcast, what do you have to do, Steve? Well, you can head over to patreon.com slash not enough champagne, where you can throw us a few quid every month, which will get you access to, uh, well, get you access to unique podcasts that we, that we record specifically for our backers over there. Get you early access to blogs and content as well. Um, we occasionally do some... Uh, let's call them a round table discussions and conversations with some of our um, friends of the podcast as well. Um, those, uh, those happen and are always uh, good fun. Our website is notenoughchampagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenoughchampagne. Our Twitter handle is at nochampagnepod. James Cram designed our logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram and Dave Depper compost our theme tune, Pricky Good Times. I'm at Paperback Rioter. I'm at Acoustic Radical. Happy plotting. Happy plotting.